Welcome to the What Scotland Thinks podcast, a series looking at the key constitutional and political debates affecting Scotland today. My name's Ian Montague, and together with Sir John Curtis, Alex Scholes and Claire Elliott, we'll be talking about the big issues surrounding Scotland's constitutional future. And today, we'll be looking at what the polls are telling us about where the parties stand ahead of the 2021 Scottish Parliament elections in May. We'll also discuss Richard Leonard's departure as leader of the Scottish Labour Party, Plus, John takes us through the SNP's changing strategy for pursuing independence over the years and outlines what that strategy might look like over the coming months in light of continued opposition to a second referendum from the UK government. So, since the turn of the new year then, John, we've had three polls of of referendum vote intention in Scotland and... The place I wanted to start today was to ask whether, you know, so far at least, we're seeing a kind of continuation of the message that we were seeing last year, which is which is really one of a, a relatively consistent majority for independence. Um, but also to ask whether we're seeing anything that suggests, you know, anything new about the motivations that are underneath the bonnet of this sort of sustained support for yes. Well, we're certainly seeing a continuation in the sense that, you know, the three polls we've had out this year have all shown uh, yes ahead, um, albeit by somewhat uh, varying margins, but on average, you know, 53% uh, to 47%. That said, I think what we do also have to say is that there isn't any evidence in these polls that the fact that we've now ended the uh, Brexit transition period and are now operating on the uh, free trade uh, agreement with the European Union that was unveiled on Christmas Eve, um, that that has resulted in any further increase in support for independence uh, beyond that generated by Brexit during the course of 2019 and early 2020. Indeed, I mean, a couple of the polls had support for yes down by a point. Well, sure, that's all pretty immaterial. Other one had it down by four. I mean, that's not enough to suggest that, um, you know, support for uh, independence has been going. But I think, you know, the truth is that, you know, taking a somewhat longer run of polls and take the last half dozen polls or so, you know, yes, 54, no, 46, that kind of average for the last half dozen polls has been the position now for quite a while. It might have edged up slightly to 55 at one point, but I think we have to say it's beginning to look as though that the increase in support for independence that was registered from the summer of last year in the wake of the coronavirus lockdown but that hasn't gone any further. It looks as though it's a step change, a crucial step change. It's got yes ahead. But I don't think we're in a situation where we can say that there's, as it were, a continuously rolling stone moving ever stronger in favour of yes, as opposed to there having simply been a step change, which is now registered it's for the time being, uh, being baked into the polls. But we can't assume that you know support for yes is going to carry on increasing during the course of this year. It might do, but there's certainly no continuing momentum at the moment behind the yes yes side in the polls. So we might not really have seen too much material change in that sort of 54, 55% level of support for yes then over the past few months or so, but 
I suppose the other major story coming out of the polls during January is is really the issue of where the parties stand in the run-up to the Scottish Parliament elections in May. And, you know, we talked about this towards the end of last year. You know, we mentioned the, the position of strength, I suppose, that the SNP looked at being at that point. So, you know, while we might not have seen support for independence change too much since then, has anything else shifted in terms of party political support over that period? Um, frankly, no. Um support for the SNP might have edged down very slightly, just as support for independence might have edged down very slightly. But we're still looking, again, if we take the last half dozen polls, um, 53% support uh, for the SNP on the constituency vote, 43% on the, on the list vote, but much of that is being accounted for by the fact that the Greens are running at about 10% um, on the list vote. Um, take those kind of figures. We're looking at probably an SNP tally of around 70 seats in the 129 seat parliament um, so a majority of around 11 or so um, the Tories still appear to be in second place but it's quite close Conservatives running at around a fifth of the vote Labour just a point or two lower but not necessarily by much so we might be looking at a race for second place if the Labour Party um, can advance a little more strongly but the Liberal Democrats at the moment still seemingly trailing and heading for the fifth place to which they fell uh, back in uh, 2016. Um, but the crucial point is that it looks as though the SNP are heading for an overall majority. And of course, if the SNP do manage to see getting an overall majority on their own, then that would have replicated the outcome of the 2011 Scottish Parliament election. On that occasion, that uh, success by the SNP was deemed uh, sufficient to justify holding the independence referendum that eventually took place in 2014 and the question will rise as to whether or not therefore the same should happen this time and that of course is why um, the UK government and indeed the Labour Party are very very keen between now and May uh, to try and reduce the SNP tally so that that position does not arise. I mean Presumably then, although we've not seen too much movement in the kind of headline measure of support for, for independence, I guess what we might be seeing is if there has been an alignment between, say, yes voters in the SNP on the one hand and, you know, no voters in the Conservatives and Labour on the other, if that's the case, then essentially we might really be looking at the outcome of the Holyrood elections as, you know, almost a proxy, I guess, almost a kind of a check on the validity of where we stand on independence. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And it's a crucial difference between the position now and the position back in 2011. Um, we know from the Scottish Social Attitude Survey of 2011 that nearly 40% of those people who at that point in time were in favour of a devolved Scottish Parliament as opposed to independence voted for the SNP. Well, one of the three polls that was published uh, in January um, made, made it possible for us to see how people who are currently in favour of independence say they would vote. And we can join that with two other polls done with last autumn that also did the same thing. A lot of the polling tables don't allow you to see this, but one of the polls this January did, and it frankly showed the same story as those two previous polls. And take all three, they suggest that no less than 90% of those people who say they would vote yes now say they're going to vote for the SNP in May, and only 8% of 
of those who say that they would now vote no, say they're going to vote for the SNP. So in practice, the election in May, at least so far as whether or not people vote for the SNP and stroke the Greens or not, looks as though it's going to be a quasi-referendum. And that does mean, however, that therefore the vote in May, if this continues to be the case, is actually going to give us a pretty firm indication of what is the actual level of support for independence. We'll no longer simply be relying on the evidence of opinion polls. And we'll be doing so in a way that the 2011 uh, election uh, did not. So it's worth being aware, this is one of a number of ways in which the 2021 election looks as though it's going to be significantly different. Hitherto, the SNP had always been partly at least reliant upon winning over the support of those people who didn't necessarily like independence. They're no longer able to appeal to that constituency, uh, but they no longer perhaps uh, need to, to uh, uh, appeal to that constituency, given that over half of Scotland is now apparently in favour of independence. Alex has joined us today, and Alex, you've got a couple of questions which I guess really look at the various pathways that the parties might look to pursue over the next few months or so, and also, you know, what that might mean a little bit further down the line. Alex? Thank you, Ian. Hiya, John. Just listening to that discussion, I was wondering, on the one hand, we can combine a majority level of support for independence with a potentially pretty strong showing for the SNP at Holyrood in May. But then on the other hand, we've got the position of the UK government, which doesn't seem to be shifting at all on the issue of a second referendum. Where does this leave us with the question of actually holding a second ballot? Is there any data that might tell us something more about the potential avenues and strategies open to the SNP or to the opposition parties? Well, I mean, the first point just to say in response to that question is that it does seem fairly clear that there, much as there is a narrow majority in favour of independence, there is also now a narrow majority in holding a for holding a referendum. At some point, one of the polls in January repeated um, a question that's been asked on a number of occasions the last two or three years. 50% said that there should be a referendum in the next five years, 43% not. And essentially, people who are in favour of uh, independence think there should be a referendum. Those who are opposed to independence take the opposite view. But given what we've just been talking about, I mean, it's worth going back over the history of why the SNP have been promoting a referendum as a way of delivering um, independence. This really only goes back to the 1990s. Once upon a time, um, not that long before devolution was introduced, the SNP's stance was that if we win a majority of the M Scottish MPs at Westminster or the uh, majority of the MPs at a devolved Scottish Parliament election, we will regard that as a mandate to um, negotiate for independence. Now, why do they move away from that stance and say, well, no, actually, we will if you vote for us, you're voting to hold a referendum on independence. Well, the reason was because they were looking to separate out the question of voting for the SNP from that of the question of independence. The party was aware that it had an appeal, a potential appeal to the electorate in Scotland as the party that's best able to stand, stand up for Scotland's interest. And that, that indeed, and indeed it's proved to be the case, 
proved to be a foundation upon which the party could appeal to voters to vote for it. Indeed, was more successfully getting people to vote for it than they could in Westminster elections. But the, they were only going to appeal to those people who thought of the SNP in that way, but didn't necessarily want independence if the question of independence was part. If they were voting for the SNP and that was going to lead to independence, then maybe they wouldn't feed into this. Well, the fact that now the SNP are not basically getting the support of devolved voters uh, and that at the same time, they now apparently can get a majority of the vote off the back of those who are in favor of independence, I think frankly changed the electoral calculation. So I think what therefore the unionist parties need to think about is they think about well, how they might react to the possibility of a majority for the SNP. Clearly, Boris Johnson doesn't want to hold a referendum and he might want to say no. We now know from what the SNP said a few days ago that if Boris Johnson says no, they will attempt to pursue a legal referendum anyway. And this takes us back to a debate that goes back before the 2011 election when the then Scottish government did a quite a lot of work trying to work out how it might be possible to hold a legal referendum. And I emphasize legal referendum without necessarily the authority uh, for holding a referendum uh, being granted by the UK Parliament. Um, and you know, that's a subject about which you know, lawyers disagree. But anyway, um, that's clearly their plan B. But you know, the question then arises is, well, if in the end they are, Boris Johnson says no, and eventually the UK Supreme Court says also what the Scottish Parliament's trying to do of holding a referendum anyway, that that is also illegal, what then will the SNP do? And I would suggest at least that one of the things that unionists may need to bear in mind is that the SNP, I think, now could go back to their policy um, uh, before the idea of the referendum, and that is to go back to saying, well, if you won't give us a referendum, then we will regard winning a majority of the uh, Westminster MPs uh, uh, for Scotland or winning a majority in a future Hollywood election as a mandate to negotiate for independence. And indeed, Joe Cherry, the person who was keenest on articulating Plan B, has said some of this and will cite the outcome of the 1918 general election in the United Kingdom when a majority of uh, MPs from Ireland were nationalist MPs who had stood on a platform that uh, Ireland should be uh, should leave the United Kingdom and become a uh, independent country, um, and so that therefore you may find yourself if you do not if you don't deny do deny referendum that the 2024 uh, Westminster election becomes a battleground about independence, and that if and I stress if. The um, independence is still as popular then as it is now, and if the SNP can still buy into the, uh, that independence vote, then the SNP are indeed likely to get a clear majority of the MP, uh, Scottish MPs at Westminster. And so you will then find yourself in a situation where a significant chunk of the House of Commons are essentially uh, MPs who are now stood on a platform that says Scotland should leave the UK, and that if that election also were to end up in a hung parliament, which again is a risk that can't be ruled out, you might find that indeed the SNP holds the hinge in such a parliament and it will be difficult for either Conservative or Labour to govern on their own um, uh, unless perhaps at that point 
a referendum is given to the SNP. So it, I think just the um, one thing for the unions to be aware of, therefore, is that I think the strategic position of the SNP has strengthened as a result of the fact that there is now this alignment between support for independence and support for the SNP that has hitherto not actually existed. Now, we've talked a bit there about the potential avenues open to the parties, bearing in mind what might happen at the Holyrood elections in May. But one major change ahead of the elections was the resignation of Richard Leonard as leader of Scottish Labour this month. Do the polls give us any insight into what caused his departure in terms of public opinion? And do they tell us anything about what we might expect to see from either Monica Lennon or Anas Sawa? They told us one crucial and simple thing about public evaluations of Richard Leonard, and that was people did not know what he was doing or how well he was doing or how badly he was doing. You know, even, you know, what, three years into the job, we were still getting opinion polls where 50% of people said, I do not know whether Richard Leonard is doing a good or a bad job. In other words, you know, Richard's problem is that he just wasn't achieving cut through with the electorate. I mean, I think, you know, people across the political spectrum all would say, you know, a very nice man. We're very sincere in his beliefs, albeit some politicians might feel he's rather left wing for their taste. Um, but in that sense, you know, nobody would really have a bad word to say about him. But unfortunately for him, he just wasn't able to make an impression either way on the Scottish public. And insofar as he did, you know, more people said he was doing badly than, than doing well. Um, well, I mean, it, it looks as though in the end, uh, uh, Keir Starmer indicated that he really didn't have confidence with him, in him, and that the unions perhaps in Scotland were uh, no longer willing to stand behind him in the way that they had done a few months ago, and that therefore perhaps he recognised that the, the uh, ground was beginning to fall from underneath his feet. But yeah, I mean, his misfortune just is essentially is that, you know, he just struggled to impress the, uh, impress the public. So far as the potential successors are concerned, um, I have not seen anybody so far ask anybody whether what, what they think about Anna Sawa or Monica Lennon, let alone whether it would make them more or less likely to vote for the Labour Party. Maybe there will be the next four weeks, but I think we will probably discover that neither of them is probably that well known. Anna Sawa is probably a little more, a little more known, not least because he was an MP and was a deputy leader of the Labour Party uh, uh, for the while until 2015. Um, but the, I suspect both of them, as it were, will probably start off as leader, even less well known than Richard Leonard was by the end, but that their job will be to make sure that the public certainly do know who they are uh, within a relatively short period of time. So this is coming at things from a bit of a different angle, I suppose, but seeing as one of the major polls that we've been thinking about today, which is the one by panel base for the Times, covered voters in all four nations of the UK. Is there any evidence in there about what people in England and Wales think about the holding of a second Scottish independence referendum? Well, we certainly know from uh, this polling that Sunday Times did, you know, not just in Scotland, but England, Wales, and indeed Northern Ireland, we certainly know that people in England and to somewhat a lesser extent Wales um, 
do not look forward to the prospect of Scotland leaving the United Kingdom with any degree of enthusiasm. I mean, 46% of them said they'd be upset if Scotland left. Uh, in England, only 17% said they'd be pleased. In Wales, it's 39 to 21, so it's slightly less. But those kinds of figures are pretty typical of the kinds of figures we've been getting when various polls have asked various questions, somewhat differently worded, um, but all of them have kind of found roughly around a half of people in England say, you know, they don't want Scotland to leave and only around a fifth saying that they actually do. Not clear that there's any rising support for independence for Scotland in the sense of, you know, God, they're so, they're so difficult and so awful, let's just let them go. Um, there's no sign of that kind of backlash. Um, uh, but that, yeah, you know, around a half of people you know, uh, would be upset. And again, certainly in England, at least, the same polling asked people whether there should or should not be a referendum in, in Scotland on independence in the next five years. 46% uh, said there shouldn't, 28% said there should not. Though, bear in mind, a quarter said, I don't know. And clearly for a lot of people in England, this will not necessarily be that central an issue. But sure, insofar as the UK government does decide to say no, to a referendum, it will certainly be articulating the views of a plurality of voters in England and Wales, if not necessarily the views of those north of the border. So just on that then, this is, you know, obviously really interesting stuff, right? It's it's interesting to know where voters across the rest of the UK stand on holding a second referendum in Scotland. And it's interesting to see where they sit on the constitutional question. But I suppose, you know, the issue is, is does it actually matter, you know, to, to what extent the, the views of voters in England say about, you know, an independent Scotland actually shape the reactions of the major parties at Westminster to the prospect of, of a second referendum? Well, I, I think there is no doubt that, you know, a um, Conservative and Unionist party um, appealing to a predominantly unionist electorate will not be will not be wanting to agree to a referendum because it certainly will affect the sensibilities of some of its supporters. Although that it has to be said, ironically, um, you know, it's Leave voters in England who perhaps uh, are somewhat less concerned about Scottish independence than Remain voters. And of course it's Leave voters that are predominantly voting for the Conservatives. But where it, I mean, certainly the Conservative Party will think it does matter is potentially as a rallying call in a potential future general election. Certainly at the 2015 election, the Conservatives ran posters of Ed, of Ed Miliband being portrayed as being in the pocket of Alex Salmond and arguing that you needed to vote for the Conservatives because if Ed Miliband had the chance, then he would give in to the SNP on the question of an independence strike, an independence referendum. Now, many people, particularly inside the Conservative Party, believe that was an effective campaign. The analysis I've done on, I have to admit, relatively limited data, but there isn't much data available, suggests that probably isn't the case and that actually um, it's not clear that people's views on willingness to vote for Labour Party in England were affected uh, by this portrayal of Ed Miliband. It was a portrayal that simply reinforced the impressions of Ed Miliband as being a relatively weak politician rather than one that created um, a new image. But I think you could certainly anticipate that, you know, if indeed in the 2024 election, uh, Westminster election, this issue is still going. And if indeed, as I suggested, the SNP are saying, well, you know, uh, we are uh, look, going, looking to negotiate independence. 
um, then um, you know the Conservative Party will be wanting to say, well, if you want to keep the union together, you've got to stand up for us because Keir Starmer will give in to the SNP. You know, they're all Remainers together, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, whether it might be more successful in that in a second election than I think it was in 2015, who knows? But that, that's where it potentially matters is as a rallying call, particularly for the Conservatives um, in a uh, Westminster election uh, south of the border. Before we go, we'd like to say thank you to the ESRC and especially their UK in a change in Europe programme who promote high quality independent research into the constitutional future of the UK and its relationship with the EU and who fund the work that we do here at What Scotland Things too. And their website is a really great source of information, not just on the issues that we cover, but you can access a real wealth of high quality research that goes well beyond the realm of public attitudes. So please do head over to ukandeu.ac.uk and have a look around if you'd like to dig a little deeper into any aspect of the Brexit process that you might be particularly interested in. To access some of the data that we've been discussing today, please do head to whatscotlandthinks.org. And finally, thanks to John, thank you to Alex, and goodbye from all of us.